0: You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 is where we will begin this morning. And hopefully as you came in, you were able to grab an outline. And that outline will be our guide through God's Word this morning. And if you did not, then the answers will be on the screen behind me as we move through God's Word. And uh, church, I'll have to tell you, I was a little disappointed on Monday, whenever I began preparing for our final message in this survey of Genesis and what has been a 12-week look, or this is week 12 here, but a 12-week look of the book of Genesis. But as I stated last week, we are never done with the book of Genesis, for it contains the foundations of our faith and of our world and our identity and our purpose as those created in the image of God. We've seen the foundational truth that God is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We've seen the foundational truth that God's good creation was broken because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We've seen the foundational truth that we are all born into this world as sinners because of that broken sinfulness. And finally, we've seen God's work from the beginning to bring about his promise that one would come from the woman whose heel would be bruised, but who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, before we dive in this morning, I want to tell you a story. I began last week's sermon by telling you a story from my favorite book growing up, which was The Hobbit. But this, this is a real story. It's not from a fictional book. But uh, I want to tell you a story about a young British boy. Who grew up as part of a wealthy family living off of the coast of England? And though he grew up in a Christian home, he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And so one day, when he was a teenager, this boy was kidnapped by Irish pirates and was taken to Ireland, where he lived as a slave for six years. During his captivity, he realized God's grace to him in the cross and converted to Christianity, responded to the gospel. After having been a slave for six years, this boy escaped his captors and found his way back home where he became a monk. And 20 years after his escape, he felt that God was calling him to go back to Ireland and preach the gospel to the very people who enslaved him. Because he had such a strong and thorough knowledge of the people and of the culture, he knew that he first needed to preach the gospel to the heads of each clan. So he did. And one of the first people to surrender their life to Christ and respond to the gospel was his former slave master. And after many more years of church planning and witnessing and seeing the gospel spread throughout Ireland... Patrick would go on to die on March 17th in the year 493, the day which now bears his namesake as St. Patrick's Day. You see, this morning as we see God's hand work in the life of another enslaved character named Joseph, we'll be challenged to actively and intentionally see how God is at work around us. And to consider how, we, how he has equipped us to join him in that work. When we realize that God has been at work from the very beginning to bring about his glory and purpose our lives. It impacts how we see the cross. And it impacts how we see ourselves. It impacts how we interact with the world around us. And so this is why Genesis is so important. Foundational for our faith. I'll ask you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we look to Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "'Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf." His brothers said to him, "'Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us?' So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words.' Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. God, as we consider your word this morning, as we finish this incredible series through the book of Genesis, in which we have undoubtedly seen how you have been at work from the very beginning to set aside for yourself a people who will worship you and who will make your name known among the nations to declare your goodness and grace. God, we pray that you would move in our lives this morning through your word, as we study it, as we read it, as we let it take root in our hearts. And we pray that you would help open our eyes to see how you are working around us in similar ways and how we can join you in obedience to that work. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So immediately following Jacob's wrestling match with God, which is where we left off last week. The sun rises and Esau comes to meet Jacob. And Jacob comes to his brother, bowing to the ground, limping because of his injury from wrestling with God. And then something incredible happens, which can only be attributed to God's grace at work in that situation. Esau embraces his brother and they reconcile with one another. See, at the end of chapter 33, Jacob builds an altar after returning to the promised land and building a home. And he names that altar El Eloi Israel, the God of Israel. We move to chapter 35 where God confirms Jacob's new name of Israel, just as he has done with the covenant, where he would pronounce the covenant and then confirm the covenant Or affirm the covenant. And then pronouncement followed by confirmation. So God confirms Israel's new name by having him cleanse his household. And hold them to the standard of God's word. And upon confirming his new name, God also confirms his covenant with Israel. That is Jacob. And here we see Jacob's blessing and consecration parallel Abraham's. Just as Abraham received a new name, Jacob's new name is confirmed but not on the other side of the river, but in the promised land. The other parallel we see in Jacob and Abraham's covenant blessings is the use of El Shaddai for the title of God. He also uses the same language of the covenant promise that he used with Abraham, both at his consecration and at his calling. The more we read God's word, the more we realize the consistency with which God operates. And how he always acts in consistency to his word. See, all of this provides crucial background to what we see happen next with what we just read. Not just the life of Israel, but in the lives of all his children. See, now that Jacob has been confirmed and blessed by God, by God Almighty himself, we see what happens next there in verses 1 and 2. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, that, that, that uh, phrase there should sound familiar as we've seen this different times throughout our journey through the book of Genesis as it's typically followed by not a prolonged story, but a simple listing of the family genealogy. But here we see these are the generations of Jacob. And the first name immediately following that is Joseph Joseph. Being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So we're told these are the generations of Jacob, and then as the generations of Jacob, rather than receiving a list, a simple list of his sons and, and their offspring, we get this story. As we've seen from every point in our look at the book of Genesis, Moses is writing all of this with intentionality and purpose to communicate to the children of, of Israel what God has been doing from the very beginning for his purposes and for their good. And so here we can gain insight into Jacob's favored son, Joseph. We gain particular insight into the sinfulness of his heart. Did you catch that? You see, Joseph is just like his father, Jacob. We have a tendency to sometimes incorrectly elevate the characters of the Bible into sainthood, so to speak. Right? That is, we like to symbolically place a halo around their their heads and remember them in a more favorable light than the reality of what we read in the Bible. And we read here that Joseph brings a bad report to his father regarding his brother's. See, that Hebrew word right there for report is debah. Every other occurrence of debah in the Bible is within the negative context of a false or untrue report, a lie. So in reading that Joseph brought a bad report to his father, what we're really reading is that the report itself was bad, not what he was reporting on or the activity that he was reporting So anytime that we are reading these timeless Bible stories, we must remember that we are reading of what God accomplished through sinful humans just like you and me. See, as we continue reading, we see that Joseph is just like his father, not just because of inherited sinfulness, but because of how close their relationship was. We see that there in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully with him. Here we see that Joseph had his father's ear because he had his father's right hand. See, in Jacob's eyes, there was nothing that Joseph could do wrong. And so why why does Israel love his son Joseph more than any of the other sons? Because Joseph was the firstborn son of Rachel, his true love. You may remember I pointed out last week that this was a big deal because until Joseph was born, Rachel had not been able to have any children. Meanwhile, Jacob's other wives were having many children. And thus we have all of the brothers. But Rachel prayed fervently to bless Jacob with a son. That was her desire. And she prayed to God. And we read in Genesis 30, verses 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. You see, Joseph's name means may he add, the, the he there being the Lord. So just as God's hand was with Jacob from birth, so too was God's hand clearly with Joseph from before his conception, that God is at work in all of this from before Joseph was even born. Now, there's another issue that uh, we haven't gotten to address yet, or I haven't gotten to address yet as we've moved through the book of Genesis, and that is the, the presence of polygamy in the book of Genesis. Now, I think this is an important issue to address because it is something that is used by detractors and non-believers and false teachers alike to confront the Bible or to seemingly, in their eyes contradict the Bible, or the Bible contradict itself. They'll say, you believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, but your Bible itself has evidences of men having multiple wives. And to that, we have a simple answer, that we see from the beginning that God establishes the marriage relationship as being between one man and one woman. And so as we look at these stories, not one point in anywhere of these stories do we see God telling these people To take another wife. But every time they do, it is of their own volition, their own sinful flesh. And in fact, every time they do, it is to their detriment that they take on these extra relationships. But as we'll see, the theme of this morning's sermon and the theme of this story is that God is at work, even in our sinfulness, to bring about his good purposes and his glory. For our good. Now, there's actually some small debate here about Joseph's famous robe, whether the wording is meant to describe the robe as being of great color, as in the color purple of royalty, if it means to describe that the robe itself was great, being of high-quality material and having long sleeves. Nonetheless, all of this is rather unimportant. Now, I know, I know, if it's not technicolor, it ruins the Branson play, okay? I get it. But we'll survive. Now, you'll notice, though, that the robe is one of the more memorable parts of this story. However, it is the relationship and the action behind the robe that is the real issue. For the rest of Joseph's brothers, the robe is just the physical reminder of how much favoritism Jacob has shown to Joseph. The enmity between the brothers is a clear sign of things to come and of the sin in their hearts And of the future conflict within the family of Israel. See, Joseph's robe represents more than just a flashy gift. For his brothers, this means that their father is likely to give the birthright to Joseph. That their father is likely to pass the covenant blessing on to Joseph. The inheritance will most likely go to Joseph. And So this robe is a glaring reminder of their father's clear favoritism. For Joseph over them. Thus the robe is the straw that broke the camel's back. So Joseph was next in line. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And the flashy robe wouldn't let them forget this. And if it wasn't bad enough, let's read what happened next. We saw there verse 5. We'll pick back up. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In verse 9, then he dreams another dream, and the sun and the moon and the eleven stars are bowing down to him. In verse 10, when he told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. So even Jacob doesn't see what is happening here. But we see there in verse 11, but his father kept this saying in mind. Now, we've already seen how God used dreams to call and direct and confirm his people throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, we saw it just last week in Jacob's call. So Jacob himself had received a dream from the Lord in which the Lord was clearly speaking to him, where God spoke to Jacob in a ladder and showed him a ladder of angels ascending and descending from heaven. And this is something that we see elsewhere in Scripture too. Think of God's call and gifting of Daniel. So in thinking back to God's intervention and answering Rachel's prayer for a son, and then now considering the clear giftedness of Joseph to not only have these dreams but interpret them, it is abundantly clear that God has his hand on Joseph's life from even before his conception. You see, church, God equips those he calls, which is our first point this morning. God equips those he calls. And what is the main way that God equips us as the people of God? He equips us with his word. The same words which set the planets into orbit, which brought everything into being and ordered creation. The same words which were spoken for the guidance and the equipping and the sanctifying of the patriarchs is the same word which we possess in greater access today than ever before. We can often get so caught up in thinking to ourselves that we want to hear from God. I wish God would speak to me like he spoke to the patriarchs. But we've already heard from God in his word. We see this in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your we walk humbly with our God by submitting to His Word. See, God equips Joseph with the ability to interpret dreams. Specifically here, first, He equips him with the ability to interpret his own dreams and see how God is guiding His people and events. But the conflict here is that Joseph's family does not see this as a gift for equipping from God, but They see it as just another thing for them to envy in Joseph's life, another thing which may gain Israel's affection. And in fact, Israel himself does not even notice that this is God at work here, but he keeps it in mind. This is just another reason for them to disdain their brother. If you'll skip to verse 18, we see there as we move along in this story, Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Joseph is told to go out to his brothers, and he finds them out near Dothan. And so in verse 18, we see that they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So his brothers are not in agreement on what to do with Joseph as we go through the next few verses. At first, they, they want to kill him, and then Reuben, the oldest brother, is able to talk them out of it. And Reuben's plan is actually to rescue him and return him to his father Israel. You see, us older brothers are really good like that. I'm just kidding. I don't want to be associated with Reuben. I don't want to be associated with Reuben. So by the time Joseph gets to his brothers, they've decided to go with Reuben's plan. So consider this as part one of how God is sovereignly working in Joseph's life. Because if Reuben hadn't spoken up, they easily would have just killed him and not have blinked. But because Reuben speaks up, they decide to go with Reuben's plan and place him in a well. And so when he gets to his brothers, the first thing they do is rip off his robe, symbolic of their father's favoritism toward him. And then they throw him in an empty cistern or well. And they sit down for lunch. I guess kidnapping kind of works up an appetite or something. So then Judah looks, up, Judah looks up and sees a caravan of Ishmaelite traders on their way to Egypt. And Judah says, well, we might as well profit off of this whole venture. And so in verse 28, this is what we see happen. So verse 28, we see the Midianite traders pass by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. See, church, as we read God's Word and root ourselves in God's Word, our eyes are open to the abundantly clear reality that God is at work in all things at all times. However, we must realize that God acts according to His Word. We cannot look for God to act outside of His Word. We cannot wish that God would act according to how we desire See, what do we mean by that? That is to say that God's actions in our lives are always in accordance with what he has laid forth in his word. And for the purpose of accomplishing his plans and purposes, not ours. Now, may we do things, we, excuse me, we may do things in our sinfulness that lead us away from God's word and away from God's ways. However, in his sovereignty God is at work even in our sinfulness to bring about his greater purposes, that is for us to glorify him. Well, then how can I know if what is happening in my life is according to God's word or my feelings? Well, we judge ourselves by the same standard we judge the world. We judge all things against the only standard of absolute truth. We judge all things by God's word. That is how we tell if it is God at work in our lives. I kid you not, I had a conversation with a friend in college one time that legitimately thought that because she had locked eyes with some random person in chapel one day, that that meant that God had destined them to be together. This guy did not know her. And she was like, don't you think that means something? And I was like, yes, yes it does. It means you have a restraining order in your future. (laughs) You see, God does not act according to our feelings or our inklings or what might be happening in our head or our understandings or our desires. God acts according to his word. So if someone ever tells you that they can heal or have dreams or that they have prophecy or that they speak in tongues or do this or that, then we judge their actions and their words against the standard of absolute truth, God's word. And we see which foundation that they've built these things upon. How do we see that they so clearly, that so clearly here in the life of Joseph? How do we see that so clearly here in the life of, life of Joseph? Where is it, again, that these traitors are taking Joseph? Where was it there at the end of verse 28? They took Joseph to Egypt. Does anyone remember what we read in Genesis 15 at God's initiation of the covenant with Abraham? You've slept since then, so I'll read it for you, all right? So, Genesis 15, verses 5 through 14, we read this. And he brought him outside, that is, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So this is the moment where the covenant is initiated with Abraham and the covenant is presented to Abraham or Abram at this time. And we skip to verse 12 there of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession." You see, God protected Joseph from being killed by his brothers through Reuben. And then it just so happened that at the exact right time, a caravan of traders was headed to Egypt. No. God protected Joseph again by having him sold into slavery. You might ask yourself, how could being sold into slavery be used for God's glory and Joseph's good? Well, I'll ask you to recall the story from my intro. As we continue in this story, this becomes a theme in Joseph's life. See, Joseph arrives in Egypt as a slave and is promptly sold. But he's not sold to just any household. He's sold to Potiphar, an, off, an officer in Pharaoh's court, captain of the guard. And now in the middle of Joseph's story, we pause at chapter 38 for the, the story of Judah and Tamar. this is a a very troubling story of Judah, one of Jacob's sons, the same Judah that wanted to profit off of getting rid of their brother, right? Founder of the tribe of Judah, and how he goes into his daughter-in-law Tamar. But we'll circle back to that story at the end, because as disturbing of a story as it is, it's a beautiful picture of how God's grace can redeem the worst of situations. See, Joseph is taken into Potiphar's house, and we read this in verse three of chapter 39. If you'll move to chapter 39, verse 3. His master saw that the Lord, his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So this is what we see is Joseph is in Potiphar's house. Because of God's protection and action in Joseph's life, he quickly rises to be in charge of Potiphar's entire household. Why? Because Potiphar was able to clearly see the Lord's hand at work in Joseph's life. And we're told that Joseph was a very good-looking man in form and appearance. So before too long, Potiphar's wife makes multiple attempts to woo him. And Joseph denies her, not based off of good moral standing, but based off of his faith. Joseph denies Potiphar's wife, pointing us back to our point from a few weeks ago that covenant faith is generational faith. So based on his desire to please God, Joseph denies Potiphar's wife, flees, and then is promptly and falsely accused of being the initiator of these events. And we read this in verse 19 of chapter 39. So as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is Potiphar, hears these words. This is the way your servant treated me. That's Potiphar's wife there. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. So just to recap, we've seen that God equips those he calls. He acts according to his word. And now as we move through Joseph's story, as an exile, we see time and again that God uses natural means to accomplish his supernatural purposes. God uses natural means in this world to accomplish his supernatural purposes. Because the entire time all of these things are happening in Joseph's life, And to Joseph, we see that God is the one sovereignly guiding Joseph according to his purposes. Church, God is at work all around us, in all things, at all times, to bring about the purpose of spreading the knowledge of his glory to the nations. And he has called us as his church to join him in that work. Us. What was it that we read Jacob say last week after seeing the angels ascending and descending from heaven? Jacob said, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. See, the challenge for us, church, is to find where God is at work around us and join him in that work which he has sovereignly orchestrated for his glory and our good. From here, Joseph goes on to prison. While in prison, where, as God's providence would have it, as we just read, he's imprisoned and he's given charge of the prison. See, many of us have experienced many different difficulties in our life. Whether that be divorce or separation from family or sins that we've committed ourselves and it's caused us to be separated from ones that we love or things that have happened to us. But what we need to see is that God can purpose everything, it can and does purpose everything that happens in our life for our good and ultimately for his glory. Even when Joseph is sold into slavery, that was an act of God's grace. Even when Joseph is put into prison, it's an act of God's grace. Because not only is he put in charge of the prison, but he's imprisoned with Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker. And he gains favor with the captain of the guard, as we read. So while, these two, while with these two prisoners, he interprets their dreams, which God had gifted him to do. He interprets them in dreams, and when they return to Pharaoh, one of them forgets Joseph, and the other remembers Joseph two years later, (laughs) when Pharaoh himself has a dream that no one can interpret. And who does Pharaoh bring to interpret his dream? Joseph. As we read in chapter 41, this causes Joseph to once again be put in a position of prominence and power. If you move to chapter 41, verse 37. Chapter 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. So this proposal is Joseph's plan after interpreting the dream. Verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne shall I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And so even Pharaoh, a pagan king who himself is viewed as a god, acknowledges the God of Joseph as being over his life. So, because of God's protection and action in Joseph's life, he quickly rises to be in charge of Potiphar's household, as we saw. Then he rises to be in charge of the prison. Then he rises and is, is able to build relationships with this cupbearer and this, um, what was the other, baker. And then he's able to go before Pharaoh himself. And then. He's put in charge of Pharaoh's household. So after this, a famine comes on the land. Joseph was able to interpret for Pharaoh. And Joseph is now presiding over Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And the famine, of course, by God's sovereignty, causes Jacob to send his sons to Egypt where there is plenty of food. Once again, in direct fulfillment of what God spoke to Abram in Genesis 15. As this is how the descendants of Abram came to Egypt. Showing us what God does to bring about his will according to his word. He equipped Joseph with the ability to interpret dreams. He saved Joseph from being murdered. Had Joseph sold into slavery. Had him rise to prominence in Potiphar's house. Had him rise to prominence in prison because of the gift He equipped Joseph with and made him rise to prominence in Pharaoh's house. And he even orchestrated a famine so that he could cause Joseph to be face to face with his brothers and for his brothers to have to come to Egypt. And this is what we see in chapter 42. If you move to chapter 42, verse 8. So Joseph comes face to face with his brothers, and Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So Joseph goes back and forth with his brothers, careful not to reveal who he is. And eventually, he imprisons two of his brothers attempting to get them to bring back their father to him. Finally, the emotions are too much for Joseph. And Joseph can't hold back his emotions. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in chapter 45. I know we're, we're flying through this story, but I just really want us to see this. So chapter 45, verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. So Joseph has revealed He sent everyone away, and he told his brothers, revealed his identity to his brothers, and he tells his brother, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God places Joseph in a position of power to where he can come face to face with his brothers, orchestrates a famine so that then, not just his brothers, but all their household has to come to Egypt, just as he said in Genesis 15. See, the Lord has been with Joseph the entire time. He protected Joseph, placed Joseph in positions of prominence and power. However, this has all been suffering for Joseph. Joseph has had to suffer. He has been excommunicated from his family at the hands of his own brothers, taken to a foreign land, forced to leave his home, his father, and his life. He is an exile. But Joseph looks at all of this as God's design and providence. You see, church, we are called to suffer as exiles and sojourners. One of the major themes of Genesis, which we've only touched on a little bit in this series, is the theme of exile. This theme of exile is one which begins here in Genesis and really is a thread which runs through all of Scripture. Adam and Eve exiled from Eden. Cain exiled exiled because of his sin. Noah and his family, exiled to the ark as a means of God's protection. The inhabitants of Babel, exiled under God's judgment and grace. Abram is called by God to live as an exile in the promised land. Abram sojourns in Egypt for foreshadowing what is to come. And as we noted earlier, God explicitly tells Abram that it is part of his plan that his descendants will be exiles and sojourners. In Genesis 26, Isaac told by God not to go to Egypt yet as the time had not come, but instead he tells him to sojourn in this land. Jacob, exiled because of his sin and runs from his brother to seek a wife. In every one of these circumstances, God was sovereignly working to bring about his will. It was God who brought Abram and Sarai back from Egypt. God told Isaac to remain an exile in the promised land, wrestled with Jacob, and then showed him mercy and gave him grace to reconcile with Esau. And now from Jacob and Rachel came Joseph, the one whom God clearly protected and guided to Egypt so that he could bring Israel, that is Jacob, and all of his family to Egypt, just as he spoke to Abram all those years ago. And we too, church, we live as exiles in this land because it is not our home. Because, church, and don't miss this, our suffering as exiles pushes us into deeper reliance upon the one who created us, knows us, and who sent his son to suffer like us in every way. Because where do we ultimately see God use natural means to accomplish his supernatural purposes? Where do we see God act according to his word and equip those whom he calls? Where do we see the ultimate example of suffering and the submission to exile? The cross of Christ. And for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross that he might rescue us from the shame of our suffering. Many times we've referenced the book of Hebrews in this series. Because the author of Hebrews is intentionally trying to get us to see how this has been God's design from the beginning. And he's showing how all of these men before have acted in faith by God's grace. And so after the hall of faith, that is Hebrews 11, which we have referenced numerous times in this series, because he wants to see this in chapter 12 of Hebrews you're taking notes, you can write off the side or we'll have it on the screen. But Hebrews 12, verses one through two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses being all those who have come before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what was the joy that lay before him? Sitting back at the right hand of the Father, knowing that his work of rescuing God's people, God's chosen, his church from exile, was complete. Where do we see that we are no longer foreigners and exiles, but fellow citizens? We see that at the cross. We see this in Ephesians 2 also. Again, if you're just taking notes, Ephesians 2, it'll be on the screen. Ephesians 2, 14 through 19. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God. Reconcile, that is to bring us back to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. Don't miss it. Verse 17 through 19. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access into one, in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, exiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See, the Lord is the only one who can rescue us from exile. He is both the one who exiles us in his righteous judgment and rescues and redeems us from exile to the praise of his glory and grace. We are not meant to be exiles on this earth, but residents with him. So the Lord brings Joseph's family to Egypt after appearing to Jacob in a dream and confirming to him that Joseph would be the one to close his eyes. This is what God tells Jacob, that Joseph would be the one to close his eyes in Egypt. And when Israel was growing old, he made Joseph promise not to bury him in Egypt, And then he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, who are Joseph's sons. And he grafts them in as part of the family, thus completing the 12 tribes of Israel. As one final act, Israel brings all of his sons together to bless them according to their attributes and tells them what is to come. This is what Israel, that is Jacob, says to Judah. Chapter 49, verse 8. and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Remember I told you how I would revisit the story of Judah and Tamar? Well, the son who was born out of that horrible tragedy of a story that is Judah and Tamar, was Perez. And when we look at Matthew 1-3, we see that Jesus' lineage is linked through the line of Perez to Judah. And of course, through Judah to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and from Abraham all the way back to Adam and Eve, showing us once again that God acts according to his word. See, God's promise at the fall that one would come from Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. And this is what he has been at work to do from the beginning. And as we prepare to finish this series. Next week, we'll have a guest speaker that I'm excited. I'll be here. I'm not going away on vacation or anything like that. I'll be here excited. Uh, We'll be hearing from the executive director of our Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, uh, Dr. Nathan Lorick, and I'm excited for him to preach to us. But after that, we'll begin a series preparing us for Easter, the two Sundays leading up to Easter, Easter Sunday and the Sunday after Easter. And that is where we'll see how God crushed the head of the serpent in the life of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word because your word gives us life. So may it move our feet to show your goodness and glory and grace to the world around us, to join you in your work of making all things new and establishing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We do ask that you provide for our daily needs, but God, we also ask that we would see your word as our daily need. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.